Good, let me request your attention again for some clarifications about our exercise. I would like to introduce the second of the Satipatthanas, which you may remember, Vedanupassana, the contemplation of feeling tone. And uh, as many of you will know, the uh, the term feeling is a misnomer in this particular uh, case. Um, a feeling can be many things. Um, it, what, it, it, what is meant here is the amount of pleasure or displeasure connected with any event in our experience. That is what the term Vedana in Buddhist psychology means. It is uh, quite precise in this meaning, albeit... Um, without a proper correspondent translation in many, many languages in which Buddhist teachings are translated. So it is a strange case where we know exactly what something is, and yet we don't have a proper name for it in our uh, language. Uh, or we need to scrounge a bit. Uh, so one of the terms that is, I believe, precise but somewhat technical is called hedonic tone, from hedone, pleasure. Um, so we're speaking of something very precise, something that is connected to every event in our experience, be that a mental event like a thought or a memory or a fantasy or a concept. And it is connected to all sensory experience connected with our five outer senses. So everything we can taste, touch, hear, see, smell. Each of these events in our experience, and it's probably a useful way to think of your experience as a succession of events. Each event in our experience demonstrates these four satipatthanas, if you remember the map. Yeah? So it has a somatic dimension, it has a pleasure-displeasure dimension, it has a, an affective dimension connected with mood, tone and intentionality, and it generally has a cognitive dimension i.e. we are going to bring a sensory experience under some form of heading connected with perception, connected with memory, connected with naming. Yeah. That's very easily found out. You know, We don't just want to taste a strawberry, we want a story about a strawberry, isn't it? We want to know where it's from and what it costs and who harvests it and whether I'll get it tomorrow and why these ones are smaller than the ones I got yesterday. Yeah? Very quickly, a sensory experience is something we want to contextualize, preferably in a story that involves me. Yeah? So if you think of events, discrete events in our experience, given the fact that we are sensate, that we are sentient, that we are receiving stimuli, then some of the stimuli hold pleasure value and some of them hold this pleasure value. And there's a huge chunk in between that we don't register. They're not technically neutral. It's just that we're indifferent to the stimulus so that we, our Vedana dimension doesn't lean either way. Yeah? So think of this as a spectrum experience. Vedana is on one hand is pleasant, on another hand is unpleasant, and there is a bit in the middle where we're not quite sure what it is because it's not intense enough to lean either way. 
If it would be more intense, or if we would pay a little closer attention, both would do the job, it would lean either way, yeah, become mildly pleasant or mildly unpleasant. As, it's, uh, as it stands, it already takes some meditative training to make that indifference margin grow small. The teachings tell us if we bring attention to the indifferent, it generally becomes pleasant. If we uh, refer to the indifferent with ignorance, it generally becomes unpleasant yeah, or stays indifferent. You will have to verify that in yourself. What I would like to um, acknowledge is the power these feelings of pleasure and displeasure exert on uh, particularly uh, our attention. Attention is much governed by pleasure and displeasure. Obviously, pleasure uh, is generally followed by liking. Liking is followed by wanting. And wanting is followed by... Um, following through on wanting, yeah, by what Buddhist teaching calls grasping, attachment, identification. Um, not liking is generally followed through by um, not wanting or wanting to get rid of, which in Buddhist psychology is another form of desire. Yeah, the desire to get rid of things is no less a desire than the desire to get things. It's uh, it's called vibhavatanha, and it's a crucial feature that goes way beyond what we would understand to be desire in a sort of Western psychological context. The desire is um, quite uh, comprehensive as a term, and it is one of the consequences of Vedana. If you find the teaching on Vedana, which is touched on many, many places in the Buddhist discourses, you find it invariably between being contacted on a sensory level and the experience of forms of desire. You know, in there between is Vedana. As a meditator, we, meditators, we try to acknowledge the power Vedana exerts on the governance, on the economy of our, of our attention, because much of our attention goes to places that have to do with our seeking and avoiding pattern. Obviously, we seek what is pleasant and we seek to avoid what is unpleasant. This is a very, very fundamental principle. It's not just due to um, higher primates. It's, um, it's uh, found in very simple forms of lives. life. Life, uh, very, very simple structures, a couple of amino acids already is enough. And the thing will move towards <coughs> things. It shows signs of irritability. It will propel itself towards what is perceived to be nourishing, pleasant, gratifying, and, and moves away with its little flagella, you know, from what is toxic or not nourishing or unpleasant. So this, is a, this principle of irritability is very much at the basis of all life, and it is also at the basis of our attentional uh, direction. Yeah. So much of what we call involuntary attention is basically governed by seeking stuff that is nice, and avoiding stuff that is not nice. What is nice is quite subjective. There's some agreements. Yeah. Human beings do better with certain temperatures than in others. There's a range where they tend to feel more at ease. And if it's much below and much above that, they tend to feel not so at ease. But much of what we experience as pleasant or unpleasant is highly subjective. It is hinging on conditioning. It is hinging on 
what we have developed. It is hinging on, to a certain extent, culture. It is hinging on training. Uh, some of it is hinging on just physiology. You know, I believe there's studies about children changing their taste, you know, at certain age. I remember very well when I started to like olives. You know, olives were horrible for the first couple of years of my life, and then suddenly they became really good. Yeah, and I am told that there are, you know, taste uh, changes that are quite documented and have something to do with the gustatory development of uh, of papilla in, in children. So we tend to attribute the amount of pleasurability or displeasurability, if there is such a word, to into the object. We tend to outsource what we experience subjectively as pleasure and attribute that to the object habitually. When you do this, this is really unpleasant to me. Yeah? So I attribute responsibility to my feeling unpleasant out to you. Uh, conversely, we obviously attribute uh, the pleasantness we experience when we are in stimulated in appropriate ways uh, and think that it is this thing or this activity that gives me the pleasure. We all know this is only partially true, that strawberries don't always taste the same way that we sometimes we like uh, being uh, stimulated in one way and sometimes we precisely don't like being stimulated in the very same way. Um, involuntary attention is what governs most of our attentional activity unless we train. We can completely survive on involuntary attention. That's one of the things nature has organized for us, that we can survive. Unfortunately, involuntary attention doesn't actually provide a good basis for understanding the mind. While it helps us survive, and while it's very useful, if sudden things happen, unforeseen things happen, things we don't know about, things that are harsh or dangerous, then involuntary attention is a fallback which allows us to cope. So our attention goes to anything loud, sharp, sudden, unforeseen, new. You know. Advertisement industry has understood this. You know, if they don't change the bottle, they at least change the wrapper every six months and write new one, you know, because they know it gets our attention. You know. So the, the novelty bit is that which pulls our attention out. It's involuntary attention always feels like its attention is being pulled out of us. You know? It's kind of, it's an appeal. Voluntary attention is a lot less dramatic. It means I make a deliberate decision to attend to something, to bestow my attention to something, to a process, an object, a person, a topic, a theme, a sensation, whatsoever. So. When we encourage you to stay with the breath, then what we suggest is basically stop following involuntary attentional patterns and develop voluntary attentional patterns. You know, if we wanted an un-Buddhist language for this, uh, choose a somatic object and cultivate voluntary attention. Doesn't sound very inviting, I know. Uh, but it's maybe more honest to speak that way. You know, what we actually say is stop following your habits and do something which you wouldn't do normally because usually you give your attention to stuff that promises gratification, preferably immediate gratification, preferably solid, reliable gratification. You know, 
And, um, you know, that's what involuntary attention does. It's kind of hovering at the background and says, well, what's on offer here today, you know? Where could I sit? You know, where is the nicest smile? Is there something to eat? Can I be suitably entertained here? Uh, and if it looks like there's nothing for me on offer, it says, okay, okay, I just go inside and rummage around in my memory bags. And, <laughs> and think of something nice, you know. If you guys don't give me something nice here, then I just go away. And, get something nice or fantasize something nice. You know, this is just not good enough for me, you know. This is my precious attention, sorry, it's not going to, you know, waste time with you guys. So I just go and think of something nice. That's what the involuntary attention does. So there's a quite clear deal. I want to be seduced, basically, you know, and I'm going to be available if your offer is, you know, commensurate. Yeah? If not, I just go dissociate into fantasy or into memory. And um, you may recognize this pattern in your meditation practice, that sometimes the intensity of the promise or the intensity of gratification by attending to a breath just doesn't seem to cut it. And that's why the mind wanders off. That's why involuntary attentional patterns take us off. And that's where the thinking comes from. Yeah, much of the thinking. Now, some of us, they, if we're more pleasure-oriented, then we will probably think nice things and fantasize pleasant things and, you know, redecorate the hall and <laughs> test, test pizza recipes or thinking about this year's bathware or so. And uh, if we're uh, somewhat more anxious-oriented, then, you know, we will be probably thinking of what dangerous things are just about to happen right now, you know. There's these ticks out there who are just waiting. And <laughs> while I studiously avoid the outdoors, you know, I'm surrounded by people who keep going out. They, <laughs> they, they bring them in, you know. And then, then there's all kinds of things that can go, can go wrong in my meditation. You know, various joints can... <laughs> get undone, I, you know, my mind can, you know, kind of start to flip its lids. There's many things that can go wrong. There's, you know, countless risks that, that, uh, that are about to basically become manifest in my life. So if we're anxiety-oriented, I have to continually, my thinking will not be preoccupied by pleasure-seeking, but it will be preoccupied by avoiding or controlling or, or worrying. I keep myself vitalized by worrying, you know. I, sus I have suspicions when I'm content. Uh, you know, it just means I'm not getting the message here. I'm, I'm kind of, this feels frivolously peaceful. Yeah? There must be something to worry about. So. so this is a type tendency. Or you just hate things, you know. If you're a kind of a dorsageri, then you're thinking, just kind of, you go in and say, ah, oh, why don't they crank up the AC here? Just how can the Buddha have meditated in northern India? I don't know how he did it. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, we need more color here. Why, why, don't they, why don't they do more color? You know, we need gold and red. <laughs> blue makes my mind peaceful. Where is the blue in here? Yeah. Or, you know, we think ah, they should be uniformed. Basically, meditators should be uniform. I want them dressed in white. White is a spiritual color. All these lurid colors here. <laughs> so you, you go in and your thinking is preoccupied with things that you don't like. 
Yeah. So some of us have trained the mind to basically engage with aversion, engage, meet things, find things, focus on things that are not pleasing to us. This is a similar habit. It's a little more unpleasant to experience, but it can be quite vitalizing. It can be quite useful. You know, uh, the Pali texts have a term for it. It's it's called randagavesi. It means looking for the crack. Yeah, it's the fault-finding mind. And if you have a fault-finding mind running, then you will find lots of faults because this is a highly imperfect world. You know. Not just you uh, will find such things outside, but also you will. This mind will turn in on itself and start to find fault with its own capacities, with its own performance, with its own state. Yeah? So all these things, you know, the fear-based mind, the desire-based mind, the anger-based mind, and there is another one, the confusion-based mind. Yeah, that is giving rise to all kinds of things: uh, doubt, and vacillation, vacillation. Um, confusion. Uh, all this is going to fuel attentional processes. Depending on my predilection, my temperament, and my obviously psychological history, I am probably prone to one of these four. I may not be exclusively prone to just one. You can have a mix. You can have lice and flea in this world. Yeah? <laughs> just because you have one doesn't mean you're not going to get the other. But there is generally a preponderance of one, and it's good to recognize that. Now, involuntary attention will gravitate to engage with the world of its experience in the way according to your temperament and your predilection. So you will get this world all the time. Yeah? So the hated one will always find things that are just not well, not good, not done properly, this, you know, shoddiness wherever your eye falls. There is things that are just not good. The desirable one will <coughs> will find things to enjoy. It wants to basically maximize enjoyment. You know, what is the most I can get out of this situation? What is the most pleasing, the most delightful, the most appreciative, the most... These are nice people, you know, greedy people. Greedy folks are nice people to be around. They love to share. They're generous. They, you know, the <laughs> the confusion one are fast and generally um, pulled into different directions. You know, feeling of not understanding what's happening. Feeling of uh, having three clear thoughts and then the fourth one calls all everything into question. Um, three steps forward, one step side, with this kind of thing. And these patterns, they will manifest. You will recognize them in your perceptual activity, you will recognize them in your attentional activity, you will recognize them in your thought and in your emotional patterns. Yeah. That's what I would expect to be normal. Yeah. Deliberate attention, and that's where Vedana comes in in a big way, is trying to unclutch the connection between pleasant and unpleasant and your ability to give attention to something. It's an attention that you deliberately give to something, not because it promises to gratify you or it satisfies your attentional pattern of confusion or of fear or of aversion. Yeah? So we're trying to establish a type of attention that becomes available irrespective of pleasant, unpleasant. And it turns out that this is more difficult than meets the eye. This is a very deep-seated pattern, and it takes some effort to, del to deliberately cultivate attention for something that doesn't 
hold the promise of immediate gratification. And if we do, lo and behold, we find out that if we give our attention to something, this may actually become exquisitely pleasant. Yeah? So it is possible that the breath from being a boring, crummy, old breathing thing I've been doing for as long as I live and why should I be interested in, it may possible, may be possible that this becomes an exquisitely refined experience that instills me with bliss. This is possible. If you have experienced that, you know what I talk of. If you haven't, then I wish that you try this out. Yeah. Because it is very conducive to stillness and it is very conducive to contentment and it is very conducive to, to confidence. Just to know that this is possible, even if it is not possible for you now, to know that it is possible for your mind is going to be very, very useful. It will make you a lot less prone to advertisements and to self-despair and to confusion. So identifying Vedana as they occur in our experience is a crucial feature. It's a necessary step. Now, Vedanas don't talk. They're generally rather short. They say things like, mm, and mm. Yeah. If they say more than that, they're probably no longer Vedanas, then it's probably already to follow up on this. Yeah. Usually a pleasant Vedana is not just followed by liking and wanting, it is also followed by a mood of happiness, a mood of serenity, a mood of, oh, this is nice, ah, I love this, yeah, I can really lean into this. Yeah. <laughs> and unpleasant Vedana is generally followed by a mood of either aversion or a mood of glumness or disappointment or despondency, yeah? there's various patterns, but usually these Vedana are fairly quickly connected with mood and with types of volition. Usually we don't pick up on the Vedana, but we pick up on the follow-up quality. So we pick up on the liking and we pick up on the mood that goes with the liking. So this happens so fast that the actual Vedana that was the trigger remains often enough undetected, or it takes some work to go back to the point where the Vedana occurred. So we're interested, and I'd like you to pay particular attention to this today, when in your system something registers as pleasant or as unpleasant. It's important to understand that this is one of the few qualities that is not volitional in teaching. You don't actually have a choice whether something appears pleasant to you or unpleasant while it happens. This is not a matter of choosing. It's not even a moral question. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there are consequences of this, and then things will get in some way ethical, and they will get volitional. But at the moment of occurrence, Vedana is a resultant quality. In other words, it hinges on your conditioning, and it hinges on your particular type of body, maybe. Uh, whether this is experienced as pleasant or as unpleasant. And all we can do is acknowledge that this takes place and acknowledge what it triggers in us. The earlier we can understand this, the earlier and the more sober we can acknowledge where it happens in our experience, the better are our chances to deal with the follow-up process, yeah? to consent to it or to not consent to it, to contemplate it or to follow through on it. Yeah? So as a practical exercise, suggest today you do stay with the breath. <coughs> you have various qualities of breathing that I suggest you pick up 
you know, how deep it goes, how fast it goes, um, how much tone there is, how much pizzazz an in-breath has, um, how rough or how smooth it is, how big the resistance of the body is. These would all be somatic qualities you can contemplate in your breathing or at least ask the question and see whether one of these qualities, depth of the breathing process, rhythm of the breathing process, tone of the breathing, uh, smoothness of the breathing, resistance of the body when it is breathing. Some of these qualities may speak to you more than others. And when you stay with the breath, and you find that your mind has wandered off, do acknowledge two things. Has it wandered off to something physical, i.e. a sound or a sight or a touch sensation or uh, something um, you smell? Or has it wandered off to something that has come up from your mind, a thought, a memory, a fantasy? Second question, is what my mind has wandered off to pleasant or is it unpleasant? So you have two questions, and you're not doing an analysis, you're just doing a scratch statistic. Yeah? So, lawnmower coming up, sound, phys physical, unpleasant, yeah? back to the breath. Keep doing this for the day. Yeah? So you want to have basically uh, some statistics on two qualities regarding your so-called meditation distractions. Are they mostly pleasant? Are they mostly unpleasant? Are they mostly mental? Are they mostly physical? Yeah? No analysis, no big questions. Leave, your, leave as much of your life out of this as possible. And just study the phenomena as, as focused as possible and then return to the breath. If nothing happens, just see whether the breathing is pleasant, whether you can find something pleasant in the breathing. Be actively interested to find something pleasant in the breathing. Find places and be ready to lower your threshold for what is pleasant. You know, mildly okay may be just okay. Yeah. It doesn't have to be ecstatically gratifying. Are we clear? Good. Let us practice. So check-in, posture, orientation in space, key areas, sacrum and lumbar spine, upper chest, position of my head, and then you go to the notorious spots in your body where you know tension is held and you're whispering th soothing words. Uh, Visualize gentle touch. You're breathing into these areas and soften, widen, deepen. We're interested in befriending. We're interested in welcoming. We're interested in expanding awareness. Touching the strongest point of a sensation and then envelop that sensation and see whether the 
Awareness can become bigger than the sensation. And by that we gradually move away from object awareness to field awareness that helps us to establish inner spaces of the body. Softening, widening, deepening.
Please take this Vedana exercise, the pleasant, unpleasant, mental, physical, through throughout the day with you. And um, over to Christina. Certainly a very, very strong encouragement to <clears throat> continue this exploration in the walking periods, to, to begin to a little bit trace this movement from sensory impression inwardly or outwardly, the Vedana, the mood, and then very often really sensing how that moves into a more of a behavioral adjustment as I either go towards or I go away from, you know. And how often that's what takes us off the walking path or brings a lot of preoccupation into the walking path. How often it makes us simply forgetful that we're even on a walking path, you know, because we have something else going on here that's really being triggered, actually, a process that's being triggered by very simple raw ingredients that have been turned into something else. So really really to, to follow that through as, as we move into the walking period. Remember that your walking period really does begin as we begin to move out of the sitting. It can be challenging, the walking practice, so many more sensory impressions, so many more opportunities to be lost, so many more opportunities actually to find our feet. Think of it as really almost a metaphor for our lives. This is really important in It's really important to really see those opportunities to be lost, the opportunities to find our feet in the present moment in the body. Two things to consider, focus and pace. I think often these are are very relational to the mood of the moment, can be a way of taking care of the mood of the moment. You know, if the mind feels very heavy, dull, you know, uh, and sleepy, don't walk too slowly. You walk yourself into a trance. If the mind feels, you know, just pick up the pace a little, just keeping slightly less than normal walking pattern, but don't walk yourself into a trance. The mind is very speedy, counterintuitive, but slow down. Slow down, settle. Don't feed the agitation. Really realizing the calming, the agitation. Focus, again, if the mood feels very, very, um, uh, again, very contracted, sometimes it's really more useful to be aware of the whole body walking. If, if the mood feels very agitated, again, counterintuitive, get precise, you know, make your focus of attention really much more specific, much more precise. Being aware that your mood in a single walking period can change so many times, can't it? It doesn't stay the same. You know, so you, it, this is a question of responsiveness rather than being formulaic. Hmm? This is how I walk. This is the right way to walk. No, actually, as I walk, am I actually taking care of the mood of the moment in a way that really supports and fosters being fully present in the walking period? We have a second round of groups starting today. And, and I, I, I'm going to repeat that. We have a second round of groups starting today. And the reason I'm repeating that is through many years of teaching experience, it doesn't get heard the first time. And we have all these gaps. And so we have a second round of groups starting today. If you were not, third, three times going. If you were not in a group yesterday, please, you are in a group today. 
Okay, that's simple. Okay, so attending to that, and some of you have a group in a few minutes' time. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.